Most psychiatric medication is palliative in the sense that it's being taken every day for an indefinite amount of time. Similarly, most non-medical interventions, like let's say psychotherapy, which you don't need a diagnosis to receive, are billed in a certain way. You get like a 50-hour block and like that's how you get billed and your insurance will cover it in this context and da-da-da-da. MDMA therapy is a bit complex because it combines those things, so it has a lot of hours of therapy and it has a drug that actually only gets taken like a handful of times. So it's actually more helpful to think about MDMA therapy as surgery as opposed to a psychiatric medication because it's more like an intervention. It's a short-term thing that has a high cost, but it's a short amount of time and it has long-term health benefits as opposed to a drug which may maybe only pay 70 cents a day per pill or whatever, but then that adds up over a lifetime. We're in the process now where we're going to have to go through a pretty intensive negotiation process with insurance companies to make sure that they understand that MDMA therapy is actually more cost-effective for them. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Ismail Ali, Policy and Advocacy Counsel for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. His job is advocating to eliminate barriers to psychedelic therapy and research by developing and implementing legal and policy strategy. Ismail and I discuss the history of the war on drugs, the differences between drug decriminalization and legalization, how MAPS has been able to achieve specific goals with the FDA under the Trump administration, Joe Biden's drug policy history with regards to the Rave Act and the Crime Bill, how medical insurance plays into a landscape where psychedelics may become medicalized, how MAPS has become a thought leader with regards to social justice within the field of psychedelics, and whether Ismail believes psychedelics can bestow a knowledge of unity, oneness, and connectedness that can affect views and policy on racism, environmentalism, and more. You know, I, I thought it might be useful to start off this conversation by asking you to define the difference between decriminalization and legalization while we're talking about drugs and psychedelics. Yeah, this is a really important thing to really like drill in on, especially right now, because there's such a push to create policy change around the field. And there's a lot of different strategies for what that policy change can look like um, and desired outcomes, depending on, you know, your ideology, your theory of change, what you think about human nature, what you think about drugs. Like there's a lot of opinions, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, re reasonable people disagree about a lot of them. So I think that there's a, there, it's good to like have some of this clarification, but it's quite, in some ways, it's quite simple. So when most people are use the term decriminalization, they're talking about uh, reducing or eliminating criminal penalties, which just means getting, let's say, crimes or behavior related to drugs outside of like the criminal system. So that's just about the criminalization, which in other words, like, can you get arrested and prosecuted for a certain behavior? So decriminalization just means we're removing the power of the state or of the city or the federal government or whatever to prosecute behavior, to, to like, you know, restrict your freedom because of some action that you're taking. Legalization, um, or and sometimes used interchangeably with like regulation, regulation usually implies legalization. What legalization means is that there's actually some sort of a neutral or affirmative structure that actually creates access to it. So whereas decriminalization might make it so selling is no longer illegal, under a decriminalized scheme, you couldn't just like get a business license from like your city zoning, whatever, and like start a business doing a thing. All of that secondary stuff, anything that involves it entering like a legal market, that falls in the category of regulation. So usually when people are talking about legalization, they're talking about like a regulated system that a product can get to a market. 
Um, whereas decriminalization, they're only talking about reducing the criminal penalty. And in the best case scenario, you actually kind of need both to some extent or another for the safest possible paradigm. Mm. Okay, good. So this is really good to kind of define these terms before we get started here. Yeah. You're advocacy and legal policy advisor for MAPS. So I'm, I'm curious, what does MAPS hope to do from a legal perspective, Spe- speaking broadly, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the core strategy that people are most familiar with with respect to MAPS is the process of taking you know, MDMA through the FDA approval process. What that means on like a commercial legalization sense is that we're actually trying to create, turn this molecule into a product that can then be sold on the kind of medical market the way that pharmaceuticals are. The significant thing from a policy perspective that this implies is that right now we live in this system where the way that drugs are categorized is based on their perception of harm uh, and their toxicity and basically like how risky is this substance? Like, does it have like any sort of use in a medical context or not? Right now, one of the, marijuana is probably one of the best examples because it has so much research showing that it has medical value, but it's, it's still on schedule one because the FDA itself has not said there's medical value because no one has taken marijuana through the FDA. We're trying to, and that's one of the other things that MAPS is doing. But so similarly, MDMA is currently schedule one. If we were to get FDA approval, what that does is that that kind of triggers a finding that the MDMA has medical value. If it has medical value as defined by the FDA, the DEA can't put it in a category that requires it to have no medical value to be in that category. So in other words, medicalizing MDMA would require MDMA to be taken off of Schedule 1, which could have secondary effects on sentencing, arrests, and so on. So that's kind of like, from a policy perspective, that's really the theory. It's like if you can get, you know, the government to acknowledge medical use, then the way that the government treats that drug from that point forward needs to be different. I do want to put a little caveat, though, because... There are other drugs that are not Schedule 1, that are Schedule 2 or Schedule 3, like Oxycontin or Ketamine or others, cocaine even, that are still highly criminalized. So we'll be able to, you know, maybe take MDMA off of Schedule 1 and put it into Schedule 2 or 3 or 4 or 5, where other pharmaceutical drugs are, but there's still going to be more effort to actually make sure that there's change in the criminal law so people also don't get prosecuted for it. I want to ask for a little bit of a clarification around federal versus, like, state rules, Mm -hmm. uh, legalities. Is part of what you do at, at MAPS, is it all on the federal level or do you try to attack uh, legalities within different states? It's a great question. So most of what we've done for most of our history has occurred at the federal level. And most of the work that we do with respect to the FDA, for example, is entirely at the federal level. There are a few things that have to happen at the state level. I'll just give one quick example. Um, so we were just talking about the process of rescheduling. What, what trigger, triggers rescheduling? About 50% of the states right now automatically reschedule when the federal government does, and about 50% don't. So in about 24, 25 states, we're going to have to go to those states and be like, hey, the federal government changed the thing. Can you change it too? So we can actually, you know, bring MDMA into this state as well. So there's a multi-track thing. And to get to your kind of the early point of your question, criminal enforcement mostly, like by volume, mostly occurs at the state level. So most arrests, prosecutions, judgments, all of that happens like within state systems. But the federal government does have like a criminal system and does do, does, you know, some criminal acts, especially ones that occur between states, happen at the federal level. So up until about two years ago, I would say we really didn't focus at all on anything local or state. We were really fixated on the federal work. And then 
and I'm sure we'll get more into this, but like because there's been so much um, openness and change or possibility for change on the political spectrum over the last really two years, especially, we've kind of been uh, forced in a good way to actually pay attention to what's happening at the state and local level. Because, you know, two years ago, doing something at the state level was just like, I mean, or four years ago, even it was just a total dream, right? It was like, not even realistically on the table. And I think now that we've seen actual policy proposals succeed in cities and in some states, there's actually a real conversation to be had there. So we're kind of in the process now of figuring out, well, what, what's the most like harmonious relationship for us as MAPS, you know, between these different systems, um, knowing that they all kind of fit into one another in different ways. Right. Yeah. So like, for example, can you speak about the water cooler talk at your work, the, the Wednesday morning after the election when, yeah. for example, a, a drug decriminalization bill gets passed like it did in, in Oregon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, long story short, we were really stoked. <laughs> um, I mean, just as to back up just a tiny bit, I don't know. I mean, you know, we, we have, um, especially the policy department that I work with at MAPS, like we, we have been in dialogue with um, advocates at various like levels of some of these systems. We had some conversations early on with the people that were working on Measure 109 and are closely allied to Deep Drug Policy Alliance and others that are involved in Measure 110 in Oregon. So we, we were kind of like watching from the sidelines, you know, in like the months leading up and um, kind of stepped out of an active role, like really like, you know, we sent out some emails to make sure to get at the vote and so on. But otherwise, we're pretty like hands off of this process, um, partially because we think it's really important that when there are community-led grassroots efforts or efforts that are kind of geographically based for a certain state, that they work with people in that state, right? We're really careful about not wanting to like push policy outside of like our, our range, if you will, our lane. Mm. Um, but we were, we were stoked. I mean, I don't think anyone, um, or I would say few people really expected there to be uh, like a sweep, you know, where not only the two bills that you're talking about in Oregon that decriminalized drugs and created a regulated system for psilocybin services, but also um, five states legalized cannabis, including num a number of states in the South. Like the fact that it was such a clear sweep, it was like, I, I, I was telling people that week that drug policy was like the bell of the ball. Like everyone was like, ooh, drug policy. Wow, you like really got that bipartisan support, didn't you? You know, like that's something that was like so, so hard to find, especially in the weeks and months leading up to this election. So we were really excited and I think, um, feel both like a sense of like really cautious strong optimism for what could happen and also caution because um if we learned anything from you know the rollout to the marijuana movement that then became a marijuana industry some of the concerns that people have around the legalization actual entering of the market the commercialization of a product those also come up against very real issues with how our economy currently functions around you know the the hyper focus on profit maximization the um, kind of targeted advertising. There's a lot of aspects about the current economic model that are really concerning and that could be harmful if they're applied to drugs. So we're like both really excited about these big changes and also like, okay, what are the safeguards we need to put in now? So in, in five years when there's like a psychedelic industry and I've, I've just gotten used to saying those words together, you know, but like in five years, if and when we do end up in a position where there's like a lot of access to a lot of different substances in different contexts, that we minimize the likelihood of the current kind of market forces kind of perverting whatever goodness people really hope to see with, with access to these medicines. So. So interesting. And there's so much there to unpack. I mean, psychedelics industry, that's the first time I've, I've heard that term. We do, however, live within the system of capitalism. And if we're really talking about a broad access for, for all people's, it feels like the movement needs to be subsumed into this system and it's going to 
need to make money for people all across the board. Totally. I, I might be, I might be, um, I might be naive here. And I do think that there's like a very real, I think that word subsumed is really interesting because I also believe that there, that there's a lot of, I'll put it this way. There's a lot of energy within this emerging industry to shift business as usual. But I've also heard that a lot. You know, people say that a lot. And I think it really remains to be seen what that balance is going to be to your point. Like, well, yeah, we do need to scale. We are talking about access on a mass scale. Um, There are certain kind of forces and frameworks that we're going to need to engage with and entangle with. Um, And I think the extent to which, like, basically, what is that negotiation going to look like, I think, between, like, capital and industry and, like, this particular substance, which... Uh, I think will resist being treated as like a simple product for as long as possible, but we'll see because there are a lot of questions around like how to actually make it um, not just, you know, literally physically accessible, but also um, understandable and translatable into all these different kind of paradigms and worldviews. Well, can you talk a little bit about the perspective that MAPS comes to this issue from? And MAPS is a nonprofit. It, mm-hmm. Is that, right? that correct? So MAPS is a nonprofit, 501c3, which is what I work for. Um, but MAPS is the sole owner of a public benefit corporation, now a second one actually in um, a similar corporation in Europe. And I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start with like the, the model and then go into kind of answering your question. So uh, MAPS was founded as a nonprofit a little bit, you know, over 30 years ago. But in 2014, so just about, you know, about six, seven years ago, MAPS kind of split into or, or created a, a subsidiary to actually hold where the clinical research would happen. And the long-term vision for this is to have a structure that works within a public benefit corporation model, which in short basically just means that there's some other goal besides profit maximization. Basically, we're in this position where there's a you know public benefit corporation that's fully owned by the nonprofit. So the public benefit corp both already has a mandate to pursue something that isn't just profit, which is great. And because the only shareholder of that public benefit corporation is Mass the Nonprofit, we're kind of in a position with this hybrid organization that we can pursue our drug development work, A, entirely on donations, which is mostly a big deal because, I mean, it's a big deal for a few different reasons, but one of the, the core pieces here is that most drug development is done obviously through investment and it's done usually with to the range of like a billion dollars per drug for a lot of new drugs. We will have probably approved MDMA for with about $100 million, which is not a small amount of money, but it's quite small relative to the way that many new drugs are developed and kind of put to the market. And the idea is that the funds that come out of that, the revenue that comes out of selling MDMA, training therapists, developing whatever kind of infrastructure gets developed for that commercialization, comes back to the nonprofit for the work that we're doing. And we work more in kind of the field of harm reduction, drug education, and policy advocacy. So the idea is to really have like the sale of MDMA be an engine for continued kind of policy change and drug war reform and so on. So it's kind of an interesting model. It's very exciting. And I think the the possibility is very enticing. And I think it's very interesting to see like what that actually ends up looking like. And for our perspective, we're really trying to find this balance to your point earlier of being able to engage with the market in a meaningful way, like be a nonprofit counter to the many for-profit actors that they're going to be, while also really holding a very high standard for things like training. And I think like one of the big tensions that we're going to see emerge in the next few years is how to do something like training. Like our training, for example, at MAPS for the MDMA PTSD program is very extensive. It takes weeks. There's pre-training that's required. There's like a whole process of supervision and so on. It costs a lot of money. And I think for the sake of like 
you know, really rapidly getting access to this medicine and having access to the facilitators, which is necessary for the kind of work that we do. It's, you know, there's nuance there, but for the kind of work that we're doing, it's really, it's really, it's really part of it. So I think that like the approach has really been, how do we make sure that our information is as open as possible? We're very focused on open science. We freely publish everything we we come out with. We pay for all of our stuff to be put onto open science um, kind of platforms. And all of the information that we find about about uh, MDMA investigators, brochure, the protocol, et cetera, it's all online. Like you can find it all very easily on our website. And we do that on purpose because we're actually, we're aware that we're working with a, a product that's um, a molecule that's not patented. MDMA is off patent. And we're very much like in this arc of trying to make sure that like whatever we can do to maximize human good is being put first before, before the profit. Now, well, I, I'm curious about how that, how our uh, values hold up in what will really rapidly be a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. I like to joke that like MAPS went from being kind of like a scrappy drug policy nonprofit to being the leader of an emerging biotech industry within two years. Um, and that's kind of like where we're at now. Well, are, are there kind of sister organizations to MAPS uh, in the nonprofit landscape or, or are there mostly, are, are there also for-profit uh, organizations that are dedicated to the legalization of psychedelics and entheogens? That's a really, I, that's, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. The short answer is that, so there are, there is one other very, you know, well-known nonprofit that's been doing similar drug development work with psilocybin called USONA, um, working through the Hefter Institute, and um, they've been doing nonprofit drug development work with psilocybin and putting out their formulation. They do really amazing work with psilocybin, and I've been kind of working on a similar timeline as Maps now for over twenty years or longer. Uh, the, however, that organization has been has historically not been as active in the conversation about legalization or decriminalization as, for example, Maps has. Uh, Maps founder Rick Doblin is. I mean, he's a lot of things, but he's definitely an activist as part of his, you know, as part of his work. So we've always had like a very strong political, uh, 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 political analysis and an engagement in the political system, because for us, science and politics are not separated, you know, as much as we want to believe, like we like to say that, you know, science over politics, but as someone who's been working in drug policy for quite some time, it's very clear that evidence alone does not form policy. Like, I, you know, it'd be nice if we just use the facts to inform policy, but it's also a lot of ideology. It's a lot of hysteria. It's a lot of other things. So it's, it's actually kind of a um, huge benefit that we can work in a nonprofit context so we can be more of an activist. We can push back against FDA. You know, we actually have, uh, we negotiate with FDA. We don't just, you know, we actually push back on the things that they ask for. We actually, um, are filing a lawsuit today to sue the Department of Justice, which is something that a lot of nonprofit, or excuse me, a lot of drug development committees might not do because we're basically, you know, filing a lawsuit against an organization that we have to get from it to what we have to work with. Um, but we're doing it because on principle, you know, the way that the Department of Justice has operated with respect to a particular issue um, is simply wrong. So we're, we're in a position where we can be more political than most groups. And as of now, I have not yet seen a for-profit company come out as strongly in favor of decrim decriminalization or legalization, except for a few potentially in places like Oregon or others where there's actually a chance for a company to actually like participate in, in an emerging industry. So I think in the same way that you saw for-profit cannabis businesses get more involved in cannabis legalization efforts over the course of the last 15 years, you know, slowly but surely. And, and you know, you saw some big cannabis companies, I mean, Harborside is like, or 
Berkeley Patients Group are both good examples of where they were like, you know, prosecuted by the federal government and, you know, created kind of a big activist movement around them. For the most part, I think that we're still, we're early on. Like I haven't really seen big for-profit companies show up at all in the psychedelic space that in a political way. Like they're really focusing on this like drug development kind of clinical research area, which is great. And also I think that one of my worries is that we end up with a bunch of people who are really excited to make a bunch of money and maybe don't actually look at some of the lingering kind of policy issues that really need to be handled at a mass scale for psychedelics to be responsibly integrated into the culture. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up politics with, mm-hmm. with this discussion. And I wanted to ask you, are, are there ideological opponents Right, mm. medicalization of psychedelics that you at, at MAPS have had to sort of uh, banter with. Like, like one thing that, that really is interesting to me, all the progress that you've made over the last four years, and I, I guess I, I just don't understand why the Trump administration has been relatively lax or the FDA under mm. the Trump administration has been relatively <laughs> open to the work that you're doing. Because if I had to guess, I'd think that this kind of usage would fall under the rubric of war on drugs. And traditionally, they've sort of like hammered that yeah, can you speak to that for a second? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you, you you raised a couple things in this question that I really appreciate, and I'll speak to them kind of relatedly, but there are also kind of multiple pieces to it. So first off, starting with your last point around like you know the Trump FDA and all those pieces, one of the reasons I think uh, you know our founder Rick has pursued this particular strategy is because there has been like this story within kind of the American institution that bodies like the FDA are supposed to be separate from politics. They're not supposed to be bound by politics. They're supposed to be bound by evidence and facts. Um, And I would say that's more true of FDA than, for example, an institution like DEA, which is continuing to really like, you know, hammer down. Um, However, however, because our drug policy is just so so ridiculous um, and has been kind of so slow to change, we're now in a position where DEA actually on this specific issue that I was talking about earlier with respect to our lawsuit, um, we're actually, it's interesting because in that particular situation, cannabis and policy around cannabis is way, 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 way more complex in the US than policy around MDMA, policy around other psychedelics. I'm not totally sure why. There's a lot of theories behind it. I mean, it's possible that people just are less familiar with it. You know, when people hear the word psilocybin, they're like, what the heck is that? But I feel like there's this um, awareness that, can't, can't, I should say, I should rephrase that, like cannabis has come with so much political baggage that like people, and it's still being fought, right? Like the more act might get voted on by the house like next week or in a couple weeks or something to, to federally legalize cannabis, um, which is a huge deal. You know, there's a big conversation at the federal level, but it's taken a very, very long time to get here. And I actually have noticed that with respect to other psychedelics and other medicines, MDMA, psilocybin, others, um, there's been a lot less stigma and a lot less of the kind of like political baggage. One other thing I'll add to that that might be relevant is that our approach, Maps's approach, and the approach of, I would say, the, the kind of field more broadly, has really focused on uh, a solution-oriented approach. So basically, in the year of our Lord 2020, like, we have so much pain, so much suffering, like, we have so much addiction, we have so much, and, like, these are all issues that, like, people, families have been dealing with for a very long time in a lot of different contexts, marginalized people for a very long time in a lot of different contexts. And now because of kind of the visibility of the opioid epidemic, the visibility of suicide, um, the visibility of all of these kind of mental health disorders that, you know, in the, this last year have really been exacerbated by COVID. 
we actually don't have to do, and one of the most interesting things I find is that I don't have to do as much persuasion as I think, as I thought I would have to do starting this job. A lot of what I do is education, and most people come to the conclusion on their own. Like, hey, there's this thing that was treated a certain way for a very long time by the political establishment. They were wrong. They had incorrect information. We've now done a lot of research to show that it's wrong. Um, and in fact, there might be some benefits. And it just so happens that those benefits respond to like the top three most relevant mental health needs today, you know, trauma, addiction, depression, anxiety. So like those, I think that like, it, it's kind of a timing thing where I think that the research has really crystallized at the point that society is also realizing that there's this huge need and that Western pharmaceutical, you know, palliative day by day medicating is just not working or it's not effective. Um, so like, for example, I just give a couple anecdotes. Like, you know, I, I work fairly closely with people who work uh, with veterans and with other kind of impacted populations like that. And it's very interesting because I'm not someone who like my, you know, I would not have thought five years ago that I would even be interested or have the capacity to be talking to veterans affairs staffers for Republicans in DC, right? That's like not something that I like would have even thought we could have tried to convince, but partially because of the strategy that Rick and Maps has pursued, really focusing on for sure veterans, for sure uh, first responders, but also kind of like I said, the solution oriented response where being like, well, there's a lot of need. How can we support that need? Um, it's actually been a lot easier than expected I mean, the reality is that it, it, it works. Like, I, I don't mean like MDMA works for this or cannabis works for that. What I mean is that a lot of people have really found relief through their own, sometimes illegal, you know, sometimes people have like put themselves at risk to, to, to experience some level of healing or relief. And although we're not out here trying to make claims at this point about what this drug can or can't do, the fact is that people are finding these things. And what we're just trying to do is build like the, the legal and the, the scientific basis to justify what's just observably re like real and what's happening. So I'll say one last thing, which is that like the most persuasive thing I think I can do for, you know, conversations that do get tough. It's rare that we have straight up opposition because usually it's much more political and much more. And I don't want to say that it's like easy because like the opposition is really a systemic thing. Like the DEA as an institution, like, a lot of these organizations as institutions, um, their they're, they're, uh, National Institute of Drug Abuse, like their whole thing, their whole shtick is about like finding the bad things about drugs or finding ways to, to control them. Um, and if that's what your job is, you're gonna keep finding ways to do that. But like that, like the, the justification for that is really starting to, to, to kind of dissolve. Mm -hmm. And one of the most persuasive things I've found when I work, especially with people on the right or Republicans or people who are more skeptical, which isn't really, it really isn't just people on the right, it's people of like all over who have concerns about drugs or drug use, is that um, psychedelic therapy isn't really fun. That's the thing. I think that there's this really big kind of moral perspective that anything that brings pleasure to a drug user is bad you can totally unpack that more later but regardless of whether or not it's okay for people to be experiencing pleasure or not when they're using drugs most people who are going through psychedelic therapy experiences to work on their trauma are not actually enjoying it per se it's actually a hard healing process that requires deep reflection you know deep holding a lot of safe a lot of safety integration time preparation you know, like, it's not like, and I guess that's the thing. It's like, it is absolutely true that people experience healing in more kind of like, uh, kind of hedonistic or celebratory environments for sure. But for the, you know, the therapy modality itself, like it's usually really hard. And when people are like, oh, wait, people are like willingly facing their worst traumas and processing them. Like, 
it's, it's a different frame, right? It's not like, oh, they're just getting high, so they're feeling better. It's like, no, 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 they're doing work. They're actually doing work with this substance with their therapist or whatever. And that is, so, so it's really like a reframing. And once that, once it's reframed, people are very rarely in opposition, you know, maybe the rest is the details of like how do we legalize it? What's commercial fear? Da, 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 all this stuff. Well, I guess this, this is worth a point of clarification is, is maps's strategy. It's not just simply legalization of MDMA or legalization of psilocybin. It is uh, a medicalization. It is a, a, a legalization of the substance under therapy well yes and no in the sense that yes because that is the main um kind of that's the main kind of focus of our of our primary strategy at this time is to legalize under a medicalized framework but we actually are a little bit we do go beyond that we actually do believe that first off all drugs every single drug all of them <laughs> yes even the scary ones should be fully decriminalized we think that any sort of criminal penalties for the use or possession of drugs is just unethical for a number of reasons that we can kind of break down if desired and, and, and further, we're, we're, we would support like legal regulated access to drugs. Um, what that looks like varies a lot depending on the country and the drug and the context. And there's this concept which we've been really reflecting on a lot called safe supply. It's a concept that really was emerged, has emerged in um, Canada and Europe especially, where you know, 20 or 30 years ago in Switzerland, they started providing like pure unadulterated heroin to people who are addicted to heroin in Switzerland. And it's been really successful because when you don't have to resort to crime or you're not dealing with weird adulterants in your thing, you don't really have overdoses. You don't have people turning to crime to get their drug. I mean, if you could get heroin as easily as people get coffee at Starbucks, again, I'm not saying that we should create a Starbucks of heroin either, but if you, if we criminalize, caffeine tomorrow there'd be a lot of people turning to crime to get their fix you know what i mean so the idea is like that the legal environment in which something happens really affects people's use pattern and although we're not saying that we should sell every drug at the gas station the idea of having some sort of legal regulated supply for a drug in medicine or outside of it depending on the substance in various contexts um, may actually be better for public health and i think this this uh kind of election in oregon uh, that decriminalized drugs is a really big first step because it it'll show can we do what Portugal did 15 years ago Portugal fully decriminalized drug and replaced it with the treatment model it's been wildly successful definitely has its limitations but has a lot of benefits and now we'll know like in two years four years can the U.S. do that can we start with that and then from that point forward like then what and that kind of goes to your point where it's just like well what is it that we're trying to argue for and it's it's really like a drug policy that is grounded in human rights and compassion and an environment where people can utilize the benefits of psychedelics to their maximum potential, which requires safety and harm reduction and training and education and all this stuff. And also a society that's not going to like throw you in jail if you, for whatever reason, get caught out, you know, doing something. So I, I, I love your strategy and your outlook of, of your organization. It, it seems almost, it's so idealistic in a certain sense. I mean, you're, oh, yeah. you're more idealistic than, than I am because I've seen so much, harm in, inflicted upon the population of the United States under the name of the war on drugs. I wonder if this question is too broad, you can tell me, but if it's uh, applicable to our conversation, maybe it would be useful to talk a little bit about the history of the war on drugs and how it sort of mm -hmm. affects what you're up against in the mission of what you do at MAPS. 
Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, and I'll give you a short version of this, but the story is 500 years long. <laughs> and I, I, people usually start the, war, the story of the war on drugs um, with Nixon and with the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. And maybe, you know, we know that there was the push in the 60s to criminalize heroin and black people and hippies and the anti-war movement. We know that there was a move in the 30s to criminalize cannabis, really, really motivated by anti-immigrants that had since been a lot of the conflict that was happening at the U.S.-Mexico border at the time. We know that there was a push to criminalized opium in the late 1800s, especially on the West Coast when we had all these Chinese Chinese immigrants coming in to work on the uh, railroads and so on. So there's like this, a lot of people are semi-familiar with like the racialized history of drug prohibition over the last at least 100 years. Um, And those are kind of significant milestones. And, you know, what you were talking about, what we know today is like the modern war on drugs over the last uh, 50 years or so um, is kind of how many people have, have thought about it. But to your to your point, like I, I just want to bring up this it, in my perspective, in my telling of history and understanding of history, the war or this battle for consciousness that really is articulated through how we think about drugs and substances. I think started five hundred years ago. I think it started uh, upon the colonization of what we call the New World, and you know many people are semi familiar, some with you know different levels of accuracy than others, about how basically how like the uh, Americas were colonized and how culture was what, what was uh, created uh, the kind of the modern Western culture was kind of emerged out of that which involved genocide it involved slavery it involved like a number of extremely exploitative systems one of the things that's sometimes lost is the amount of um, what people call cultural genocide that occurred which is not just the killing of people but it's also the eradication of concepts and culture his history and, and society and so on and a lot of the, there's good evidence that one of the main things that settlers did in the early kind of days of what they call the new world is um, actually eradicate these like spiritual practices of the native people. So a lot of the art, although this is harder to say for something like LSD or MDMA, both of which are drugs, which are most more or less invented in the last hundred years, for a lot of other substances, including psilocybin and DMT and others that kind of fall into this category of psychedelics, um, there is, you know, a very, very, very long global historical use of these things, and the eradication of those of those practices far preceded the modern war on drugs, such that the perception of these alternative practices that weren't Christianity or weren't whatever were seen as being demonized or seen as being um, dangerous. Literally, literally, hundreds of years ago. So I say that because when we think about the big arc of what we're trying to do. I'm actually saying maybe one more thing, which is that like up until the late 1800s, most of the global drug trade did exist under the arm of like large economic systems. So like the British government or the Dutch government or whoever, like there's a big history around how opium made it back to China through the British. And, you know, there's a lot of um, history around how trade around these drugs actually actually occurred. And this idea of prohibition, of criminalizing drugs, was actually an American idea that started about a hundred and something years ago. It's not, if you look, most of history, drugs were not prohibited. They were criminalized in certain ways or traded by certain people who had power. So the idea of like this full blanket prohibition on drugs that then led to, you know, formulated here in the United States and then kind of pushed out to the UN and became kind of like the global drug control mechanism over the last hundred years um, is actually an exception to the rule. So the way I think about it and the way that we think about our, our, our advocacy work is actually now that we're trying to change something to something, I mean, we are trying to say change to something new, but we're, we're, we're actually coming back to something that we've been doing for a long time, both 
thinking about how psychedelic medicine gets held in ceremony, as well as trying to create a system where we're actually like honestly and truthfully talking about the benefits and the harms in a realistic way. Like the idea here is not to overly glamorize or overly commercialize, right? It's, and I think that's that's the, the rub. It's like, we're not just trying to legalize it to sell it. Like there, there's like benefits and of course things are going to open the market, enter the market like you were saying and so on earlier. But actually like this idea of trying to bring drug policy back to the way things have been where like we have trade where we have like honest conversations about it and we can honestly discuss like the risks that that really do exist instead of kind of like putting them in this like uh, untouchable category like I, mean, I don't know if you uh, you know I was part of the dare generation so like I got the like just say no like you know big doobies with like stoned eyes you know that whole arc is is new it's it's an exception to the rule it's not how most of history has been so I think like bringing this all back to kind of your question like well what's this big storyline it's partially to destigmatize the drugs themselves but at you know at its core level, it's so much more about um, ethical and humane treatment of the people who use the drugs. Because if we you know zoom back up to this more modern history with how the drug control system has been used to target certain social populations, certain demographic populations, where it's about the drugs, but it's really about the people who use the drugs. So like our whole arc around drug policy is like how do we make it a more compassionate, less stigmatized, safer, um, more healthful, more whole world where people who are using drugs are not totally separated from any sort of real services that are trying to help them. And at the same time, like people who are seeking support can actually get that without having to go through the shame of having like failed, you know, we had this whole, whole like moral story around drugs and drug uses, I think caused a lot of harm. Um, and it's made it really hard for people to get help. So it's made it really hard for us to have like real adult conversations about drugs because we're so like in this like, storyline that the war on drugs kind of created for us so i don't know if that answers your question but it, it, you know thinking about like this long arc really helps crystallize the the purpose like what the outcome is and like so much of it is figuring out what worked in the past that we can bring back and thinking about like what concerns or issues are are up in today's paradigm that can be responded to by you know a, a responsible mindful intentional use of these substances I mean, there's so much there with the war on drugs, so much there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad you brought up D.A.R.E. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm D.A.R.E. generation or McGruff, the crime dog uh, generation. Nice, yeah. McGruff, yeah. Even as a second or a third grader, I remember how ineffectual the propaganda was. It made me want to try drugs, actually, because I distrusted Most of us. The thing I wanted to bring up from the 1980s, since I I took a whack at the Trump administration in previous question, was Mm -hmm. Biden, actually. Mm. If if I'm not mistaken, he was the sponsor of a really injurious bill, Mm -hmm. part of the the Rave Act, which created severe penalties for MDMA use. And Mm -hmm. I was hoping you could walk me through that as Mm -hmm. well as kind of talk about, do you have any trepidation around the political landscape with a Biden administration? Yeah, super good question. And probably the most existential conflict that fellow uh, drug war kind of healers, especially those of us that are more on the political uh, left are are dealing with right now. So that's a really good question. And um, Biden didn't just sponsor the Rave Act. He also was the primary author for the Crime Bill of 1994. And a lot of today, yeah, a lot of today's drug policy was really pushed by uh, this like law and order Democrat of the early 90s. And Biden is like the best example of that kind of archetype. This is also when like 
Bill Clinton and really the Democratic Party as a whole was trying to kind of catch up to the Republicans with their tough on crime rhetoric. Like Republicans really nailed that in the 80s. Um, so you had kind of the, like, not I wouldn't say the left, but the Democrats like starting to kind of like try to match them at that. And then, and that's where I think you see this like kind of pendulum swing, which is these policies. So yeah, I'll say two things. One on the Rave Act. It's interesting because the Rave Act is an extension of uh, crack house statutes, which basically create liability for landlords or uh, landowners, managers that allow drug use to occur on their property. And there's a broad explanation of that. About a year or two ago, I'm not actually sure now, probably about two years ago, the Department of Justice did issue a memo saying that it would not be prosecuting people who were implementing harm reduction through the Rave Act, which is a big deal because one of the big concerns was that promoters could be held liable for knowing that there's drug use on the property just by allowing harm reduction to happen there. So like, I mean, in basics, like free water, earplugs, like a chill space for people to sit if they're too stimulated. Like those are all basic harm reduction measures that we'd really want to see at any event where people may or may not be doing drugs. And there was a big worry for a very long time that venue owners who wanted to implement harm reduction would not be able to because they'd be perceived in this thing. As far as I know, there's only been one case in which that prosecution has actually happened. It was some years ago. And um, since the DOJ has now said pretty explicitly, like, that's not the intent of this. We can kind of breathe a little side of, side of relief there. Um, but that then leads to like kind of a bigger question, which is like, is this environment, this political environment going to be one where we can undo, frankly, a lot of the things that kind of like the Biden Democrats and like the kind of like that whole early 90s criminal reform era really created? And just as a note to that, like I'm from, I was born and raised in Fresno, California, which I found out only a couple of years ago was the birthplace of the three strikes law. Like the three strikes law, which put a lot of people in jail for a very long time, really, really damaging, I think, as a whole for our whole political system. And of course, for the lives of so many people who were, had to deal with that criminal legal system, you know, we, I really see like what's like the criminal justice arc broadly now. It's so interesting to see like what the last 20 years of criminal justice have looked like, because today, I'm sure you know, you know, you see people like the Koch brothers or like other generally Republican leaning or right leaning people who are suddenly like, wait a minute, this criminal justice problem is a real issue and we need to figure out what to do about it. Um, we're spending too much money. We're not getting the outcomes we want. I think that the rhetoric of the early 90s has really hit its expiration point in the sense that like we now can see 20 years later, 30 years later, that a lot of the attempts to uh, incarcerate our way, as I say, arrest or incarcerate our way out of crime just doesn't work. Um, so going more specifically to your question, I'm, I'm curious about, I'm very curious. And actually, I'll also just name Kamala Harris because she also, you know, she was a very, very effective prosecutor you know, as a California AG. Um, and did some really amazing things with respect to corporate corporate issues and human trafficking, and, and also like just perpetuated kind of like the drug control system as it is as well. So the fact that we're getting to yes, Democrats, but also like real drug warriors, like people who are like at the forefront of the war on drugs, like and not on our side, for a long time is a very interesting paradigm. And you know, at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a conversation we had internally at Maps around. Well, what if, what if um, one of the things that Trump does and his administration does is deregulate the FDA? Because, you know, there's a big move, especially like the libertarian right kind of U.S. political movement to deregulate in general, reduce regulations for things. And we were like, well, what happens if, you know, they deregulate FDA and it becomes easier to put drugs through? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing for MDMA. What if we did that? 
one of the, the concerns that I brought up at that time, and I'm really glad that, you know, now four years later, we, we were able to navigate this really responsibly, I think, was like, well, what happens when in four years or in eight years, you know, at the time, whatever, and the pendulum swings back, people are like, well, you know, all these things that got passed through FDA when it was deregulated, how do we know that they're up to the same standards that every other drug has been? Right. And that's a real concern, you know, for, for us and also for like science broadly. <laughs> so I think just broadly speaking, like the, the way that we recreate these narratives, we, we push some of these narratives, like really has an impact on the outcome. And I'm really glad we actually ended up not, I mean, first off, the FDA didn't get very deregulated over the last four years and for the most part. And we continued out, you know, from MAPS's part, our process of making sure that we were holding things to the highest of standard. We were over-reporting, you know, putting more information than we need, really going above and beyond to avoid any concern about that. But with respect to Biden and Harris, I think that a big question for us is going to be, well, for one, how much have they changed? How much have have the two, have, they, have them, have Biden and Harris and also their... Um, policies and their internal policy perspectives changed over the last you know 20 years or 10 years or however long joe biden did say in multiple debates that no person should be arrested for using drugs or go to jail for using drugs that's a huge shift from joe biden in 1994 um so if he really means that and that's a meaningful shift then we could see and again that plus this other move from the right and this bipartisan move toward decarceration and reducing criminal penalties broadly and kind of shifting the paradigm um, is encouraging, but I really think it's going to depend on you know advocates that are coming to the left of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to push them further on criminal justice. And you know if they get help from libertarians or people on the right for that, then great. It's hard to say that I'm more. I, I would definitely not say that I'm more worried now than I was during the Trump administration, just because there were so many other implications. Although you know we're not out of the woods at all yet, and I, I'm curious to see if they if come on if Harris and um, Biden like lean into that narrative as part of their policy or if they, they think otherwise. I will say one quick thing, which is that uh, Hunter Biden has, suppo- has, had, has been in the news and is known for his struggles with addiction. There's a really good interview where he's being interviewed with someone like a couple of weeks ago and they're like, you were in and out of, in, you know, in and out of rehab. And he's like, whoa, wait, say it nicer. I sought treatment like a thousand, like millions of Americans, you know? So I think that there's a general move toward um, destigmatizing drugs and drug use in general, which I think will be good for this. Um, whether or not, it, you know, whether or not that also translates into openness to changing policy around psychedelics and medicalization, I think is a slightly different question. But the good news is that because we operate in the realm of science, not politics, it kind of doesn't matter what the what the administration thinks, because we're working with the FDA on this thing that's supposed to be um, buffered from like that political pressure. And although, you know, I would have been skeptical about this four years ago, the fact that the FDA has been able to stay quite independent of political pressure over the course of the last four years does bode well for us in the future. We're like, I don't really anticipate um, there being like a huge, to your earlier question too, like a huge pushback where suddenly we're worried that like there's a drug warrior in the White House and they are like resistant to us doing our very, very careful, highly regulated medical research. That's, That's less of a concern. I think the bigger question is like, will we be able to independently of the psychedelics, will we be able to enact the very large criminal justice reforms that people want? You know, reimagining policing, thinking of alternatives to armed response, thinking about crisis response, thinking about diversion from prison. Like there's a lot of other big criminal justice kind of efforts that are moving forward, bail reform, that I think may be, that those are the questions that I have for this next administration. On the psychedelic stuff, I feel confident that like our narrative and like our, our 
long-standing now, uh, I don't, I, I say multi-partisan instead of bipartisan because we were with people from all these different kind of places, but um, our multi-partisan kind of strategy had, buffers us a bit from like the, the pendulum back and forth. And, and talk to me for, for, for a moment about insurance. I mean, talk to me about mm. FDA approval and why it's so key uh, mm -hmm. in terms of insurance to the aim of bringing psychedelic therapy to a broad base of people. Yeah, super love this question. You're asking, I appreciate your question so much. I appreciate that you've like thought about this and like these are all, it's a good flow too because like it's, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to just jump into some of these questions without having some of that context. So I'm just really, I just want to appreciate, you know, the way that you've framed oh, this. Oh, absolutely. Also, uh, Ismail just referenced the, a couple of interviews that I listened to before this mm. that I'm conducting. One was with Laura May Northrup and yourself. The interview that she created brought a lot of these questions to my mind. So a lot of respect to, uh, to Laura to, for what she's awesome. Awesome, awesome. I appreciate Laura very much. And um, I know that she's finishing up a book right now. So putting up, putting out good energy for that. Yeah, so to your question about um, insurance. So two things. One, generally speaking, drugs can, drugs get covered by insurance, both after they're approved by FDA, and there's some sort of effort on the part of the manufacturer to show an insurance company that it's worth getting covered. I also want to differentiate here insurance in the United States versus insurance in other parts of the world, including parts of the world that have figured out that universal healthcare is a better system. So in the US to get insurance coverage, you basically have to get FDA approval. And then there has to be a process where you're proving to each of these insurance companies that this particular drug is worth getting paid or worth getting covered. So at first, a lot of that work is done by FDA approval. Like it's pretty much as, and I don't, I don't know this for sure, but as far as I know, there are very few, I won't say none, but no to very few um, interventions that are covered by insurance that are not FDA approved. So generally speaking, FDA approval is one of the big triggers for that. In the U.S., where we live in a payment for healthcare model, the only way to get access to um, uh, both the medication and a modality like MDMA therapy or psychedelic therapy, which requires hours of professional care in addition to the drug itself, is if someone is paying for it, if there's some sort of like payer that's able to cover it. And in a best case scenario, broadly speaking, in a best case scenario, you know, the patient themselves may in my opinion, should not be covering it at all. Like, I think there's lots of ways to think about coverage, but in the U.S., like we, we have to get FDA approval for MDMA to be covered by insurance and thus available as a treatment for people who aren't able to afford it otherwise. The modality itself, just really quickly, is a little bit different from traditional therapy in the sense that a lot of, and, and most pharmaceutical or psychiatric medication, most psychiatric medication is palliative in the sense that it's being taken every day for an undis, you know, un indefinite amount of time like like and that's not always true people sometimes take antidepressants on like you know year-long cycles or so on but very often a lot of the pharmaceutical interventions are, are palliative they're long-term similarly most non-medical interventions like let's say psychotherapy which you don't need a diagnosis to receive are billed in a certain way you get like a 50-hour block and like that's how you get billed and your insurance will cover it in this context and da 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 MDMA therapy is a bit complex because it combines those things. So it has a lot of hours of therapy and it has a drug that actually only gets taken like a handful of times, maybe two, maybe three. So it's actually more helpful to think about MDMA therapy as surgery as opposed to a psychiatric medication because it's more like an intervention. It's a short-term thing that has a you know, prep, during, after that has a high cost, but it's a short amount of time and it has long-term health benefits as opposed to a drug which may maybe only pay 70 cents a day per pill or whatever, but then that adds up over a lifetime. So it's a very, it's a different approach to kind of the care in general. And we're going to have to go through, we have, we're in the process now, but we're going to have to go through 
a pretty intensive negotiation process with insurance companies to make sure that they understand that MDMA therapy is actually more cost effective for them than giving someone an SRI, SSRI for 35 years. Um, we're doing some of that analysis now, and it's, you know, that's really critical here because insurance companies are also figuring out what their margins are and so on. So if we want to make sure that it's as cheap as possible for the actual patient, we need to convince the insurance companies that it's worth them paying for. The other point I want to make is that we're also working simultaneously in Europe. And that's different because in Canada, in places where you have kind of a universal or single-payer healthcare system, in a place like Europe, I'm, you know, it's really interesting because, because the state itself usually pays for healthcare through the state-run insurance program. It's less needed. It, the main thing, of course, you have to show efficacy and safety. That's like always the case. But in Europe, like if we're able to show that it's more cost-effective than other drugs, which we're fairly certain we're going to be able to show and are already starting to develop some of the data for that, the state just covers it. Like it ends up, the idea is that it ends up saving these payers a lot of money. Like the VA, I don't have the numbers with on me right now, but the VA spends millions of dollars per person, right? Per person over the course of their lifetime for their long-term therapy, care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that having some sort of like payment approach in a place like Europe where like people for at the point of service, like don't actually need to be putting the money down is probably like the best way for, you know, what I would say is like kind of mass, mass access. Like this also kind of bleeds into a question around like just financial access and like what, you know, what something like this will cost because, you know, our protocol is like, I think it's like 48 or 52 hours of therapy. You know, even if you look at like the cheapest, like medical reimbursement numbers, we're talking like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of therapy time, just for therapy time, not even including the drug, which will actually probably be the cheapest part. Figuring out how to make sure that there are as many pairs as possible that are able, willing, and have the capacity to pay this and want to pay this is another big thing. And, and I would say that like this, I pre, you know, we were talking about this earlier, this question about commercialization and how we bring things to the market. I, I, I on a personal level, really strongly believe that if we were able to move to some sort of either universal or like more universal healthcare system, we'd be better for more people. So it, we're kind of like figuring out how do we make this modality work within the current system, um, which has a lot of like pitfalls. And I think that I feel confident, you know, after the Affordable Care Act, there's a larger number of Americans that are covered by insurance. Um, if we can get Medi-Cal or one of these like major insurance or the VA to provide care through this way, like, you know, we, we'd be making a really big dent in this. And I think our big question is going to be, can we show that it, it, it saves money? And I'm pretty sure the answer is yes. I mean, doing an intervention that takes literally like two to three weeks or months um, and then has like the kind of, you know, outcomes that we have is just, it just improves people's quality of life so much. It allows them to to work, to do things that they're otherwise losing when they're in this highly dilapidated state. Yeah, the insurance question is a big one, though. It's one that I think about a lot. And um, I think that it keeps some of us up because we're just like, you know, we're really excited about this modality, but if it ends up costing, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, like who's going to be able to do it unless we can convince these companies that, that's, that it's good for everyone, you know, including them. The objective of this show that, that we're creating at Essel and this set of interviews is to find out what's happening in psychedelics today, but particularly from a social justice lens as well. And I've noticed MAPS being a thought leader in this space as well as Chakruna. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, why do you think there's this kind of focus and this kind of curiosity to this issue by the players in the field of psychedelics? As, you know, psychedelics historically has a typically kind of white male mm -hmm. vibe to it when I think about mm -hmm. the 
the big names, it's like mm -hmm. Timothy Leary and Ken Casey totally. and uh, Myron Stoleroff, mm -hmm. I notice is kind of changing. And I wonder if mm -hmm. you could just speak to that, please. Yeah, this is my favorite topic. <laughs> One of my favorite topics. So um, just to start, I mean, on a personal level, like my personal answer. So I was born in California in Fresno, but my father's family was born and raised in India. Uh, he actually was born in India and raised in Pakistan. And my mother's family is from Colombia. Personally, have like my whole personal story around like how I engage with these these substances and the culture around them and so on, has been really informed by like my own understanding of how we think about ancestry, how we think about history, and all of these things. And I say that because you know thinking the really big picture around like what it means that the kind of like respectful use of a lot of these substances in places like India, like Africa, like the Central and South America, like. There, like the fact that there was such an attempt to eradicate and kind of repress these beliefs is 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 a signal to me of like what they were see how powerful they were seen as being and like even if you look at it purely from a cultural sense like the way that peyote or ayahuasca or other substances have been used to build cultural cohesion within traditions tribal traditions and so on really does show and you see it again today like you like it's really kind of starting to show up like how these substances can really empower people and empower cultures and empower, empower groups when they're done in a really when they're done in integrity so i think that on a really big scale there's kind of a reclaiming that's happening and like this angle around like social justice language and so on like how we how we think about you know people from um, the global diaspora or people of color, however you want to call them, us, <laughs> however you want to like kind of name these different kind of cultures and traditions. It, a, lot, a lot of it, I think, especially right now, you know, 2020 these days is really focused on this idea of reclaiming and being like, well, what would, what would these traditions have looked like if there wasn't an attempt to eradicate them by the Catholic church, for example, or by the Spanish government or by the British government or all these different entities over the course of life. And then later by the United States itself over the course of the last, you know, 250 years there's this meta arc that's like, whoa, these substances are actually, they come from like, you know, these various global traditions. And there are people from those traditions in diaspora generations later all over the world. And there's a lot of us here in the US and we're like, what? like this is like, you know, and so, so there's this aspect of like intergenerational reclaiming that's really happening, which is super beautiful to see. And then th and that's, that's like one kind of really existential kind of like core value-based kind of way to look at it. And then there's also this question that we were just talking about around practically speaking access. So there's, there's a spectrum of like how trauma has impacted society and trauma has impacted certain, impacted certain demographics more than others. And we have good evidence that people who are experiencing racialized trauma or experiencing gender-based violence or experiencing all these things these different kind of issues are highly impacted by trauma. And when you have people or cultures who have been impacted by similar trauma over multiple generations, we're in a position where we're, we, we live in a highly traumatized society, highly, highly traumatized society. And the idea that psychedelics, and this, this kind of like loops into what we were talking about cannabis, like the idea that psychedelics could suddenly be legal and available and, and, and we can pay for them and they can help us with that things, like that's really exciting. And it kind of freaks people out when they're like, wait a minute, we saw what happened with cannabis. You know, we saw the millions of people that were arrested and incarcerated. We see now, you know, John Boehner on the board of Canopy Holdings. Like we see the amount of money that's going to be made in this industry without having taken care of its harms. And I think that that is, even from like a karmic perspective, very risky. You know, people are making a lot of money off of something that's caused, a, you know, off of a system that's caused a lot of harm to people. 
So I think very practically speaking, there's a worry that psychedelics, even if they become available to your point earlier, they become available for rich people who can afford them, whatever. Like people who've been highly traumatized, people of color, women, people who've survived sexual trauma or childhood abuse, um, refugees, like they're not, it, you know, there's usually a correlation. Like it's, there, there's, there's, there's usually some correlation between, you know, the, extre the extreme, the extremity of someone's trauma and their ability to like survive in the world. Like generally highly traumatized people have a tougher time getting jobs. They're usually more socioeconomically marginalized. So these things are all, you know, kind of compound on each other. So the idea that we could have legal access to super expensive psychedelics that only rich people will get access to while like the, you know, descendants of the people whose practices were eradicated would not have access to it both financially speaking and also culturally because there's no cultural competence from the therapist or the practitioners to actually offer it like that feels like an injustice so i think that what you're talking about you know this idea of bringing kind of a justice oriented lens to psychedelics has much to do with the awareness of what their potential actually is much to do with an awareness of how intergenerational trauma works and is held and one of the related arcs that's happening that I think is very tied to this is the difference between individualized like two-on-one -on or one-on-one -on -one therapy and group therapy or communal therapy or communal healing. And I think like what's going to happen as psychedelics become less stigmatized and become more normal right now when there's like this very strict like individualized healthcare paradigm. I think that that's going to change. And, you know, if you look at naturalist, naturalistic use of psychedelics, how people are actually doing it, it's often in groups. You know, it's more often than not, it's in groups. Even if it's small groups of friends taking a hike in the forest or people at a festival or in a circle, you know, very well-held indigenous ceremony. So all that to say that, like, this arc toward kind of social justice to me is a part of bringing out the core ethos of what these medicines and these substances and these structures are meant to offer in the first place. It's actually a symptom of kind of American exceptionalism, American assimilation, that the way that you and I, you know, the way that we were taught to originally think about psychedelics, so this is me too. I was also introduced to psychedelics through people like Ken Kesey and reading those books and stuff, like even as someone who now I can see my own history and recognize. But as a teenager, I was like, arrowwood.com, you know, like, I was like, that's where I learned this stuff too. So so I think that there is kind of a, um, a meeting here, a kind of a, a meeting of concepts here where like, oh, there's this reclamation. There's a way that these are actually the people's medicine. You know, a lot of these plants are the people's medicine. They're, they're really like cultural um, modalities that have also like, you know, developed these like traditions or so on. And at the same time, there's like the very real need for trauma healing <laughs> and, 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 and just from a very like practical perspective. And this has to do with, you know, different people have different theories of change around this, but it's very much like the rising tide lifts all boats kind of vibe. Like if we can make MDMA therapy such a stigmatizer, psychedelic therapy, such a stigmatized substance and a very like weird out there esoteric alternative practice, like if these things can become available to the most marginalized people, it only follows that everyone else will also be able to have access to it. Like it's really, and so, so it's also like a theory of change where we're like, how do we ensure that, these most marginalized, most marginalized people are protected and, and have a context that's actually effective and works for them um, while also making it palatable, palatable enough to the rest of the society. Like, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, because we're talking a lot about, you know, like race and POC and like how we think about all these concepts. And sometimes I wonder, like, if it wasn't, you know, mostly white privileged people who were doing this research in the 90s and early 2000s, would it have, would it have continued? I don't know. Like, I really, honestly, and I, I say this to, you know, my colleagues, like, I appreciate that there are people who have been willing to put themselves in legal risk because, like, 10 years ago, I would not have imagined it would be possible for me to be some, someone doing it. The fact that, like, 
I'm able to be public about my experiences with psychedelics or my work or whatever, like that all is possible because there are a lot of people with more privilege who are willing to show up and be like, well, we're actually going to say this and we'll put ourselves at risk to do that. And of course, it's complicated because like at some point there's also going to be a reckoning for like who it's like you said, like who represents these things? Who, who, whose authority is it? Who do we have to listen to? Those are bigger questions that I don't think we can answer to by just looking at history. I think that that's going to be a much more like existential question for the psychedelic movement um, or the, for the movement of people that are seeking to create access to these things. Um, I have a tough time defining a movement by what we consume alone. You know, there's usually more than that. The language that we're using at App is health equity. Like, in the same way that, you know, with cannabis, there's all these people in jail, like it would have been really right. And I really respect groups like the Last Prisoner Project and others that are really fighting to make sure that as long as people are making money off of cannabis in the legal market, we got to get people out of jail. We cannot keep incarcerating people for the same behavior. It's just not fair. It's just not right. So similarly, our approach, because there isn't the same volume of people incarcerated currently for psychedelics as there are for something like cannabis or heroin or cocaine, the way that we're approaching is, well, how do we actually, how do we incorporate health equity into this outcome? And this goes back to the first part of this conversation that we were having around like, well, how do you bring something to the market in an ethical way? And so much of that for us is like, well, who has access to the benefit of whatever that is, whether it's the economic benefit, sorry, the business or the actual health benefit of the outcome, because we'll be, we're, we're actually about to announce, we're close to announcing, I can definitely talk about it here, a health equity program. It's going to be a multi-million dollar effort that really shifts a lot of our like big, a lot of the big projects that we're working on to create access to MDMA. So insurance is one of them. Um, who we train, who's actually trained to offer the, to offer it? Like, are they culturally competent? Can they work with different populations and so on? Um, we're putting a lot of energy over the next couple of years in the years leading up to approval, specifically to make sure that we have, I think that the framing we've been using is trying to make it so the therapists that we have trained reflect the demographics of the United States which is harder than it sounds because most people who are in, or many therapists or people who are in this position, um, it tends to kind of lean, lean white, lean Caucasian. Um, so we're trying to figure out like, how do we make sure that there's like some sort of like balance here and representation, not just like cynical representation. Oh, we just have the right, you know, skin color person in the right place. But like, how do we actually make sure that the, that the care is competent and that people can have. So, so we're, we're thinking about, we have about two years, you know, a year and a half or two years before, you know, anticipated FDA approval. And we're like, what are all the things that we can do to make sure health equity is folded in? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very excited. I feel like, you know, well, there'll be more announcement about it, you know, at the beginning of 2021. And um, I'm really curious, like legitimately, like as someone who's working within that, like, can we do it? Like, you know, is it possible to work within this like larger system while also prioritizing equity in a way that, that has a meaningful impact? Mm. Well, we're coming towards the, uh, the end of our time and you've been so generous with your time. I want to ask you kind of a large question to, to conclude with. Do you share with what Michael Pollan has kind of called an evangelical enthusiasm for, for psychedelics? <laughs> so in other words, we're, we're talking about this equity for all people. Are there moments when you believe in the capacity of psychedelics itself, the substance, you know, and I guess the container in which it's delivered, including the therapy to bestow this knowledge of unity, oneness, connectedness that might affect views and policy on, say, equity, racism, or even environmentalism? Yeah, yeah, I love this, this question because it's, it's, it's more of a dilemma or a discussion than even a question or a problem to be solved, you know what I mean? Like, because it brings up so much, but um, I'll start by saying that I don't personally believe that psychedelic substances um, have an inherent like moral value. 
Um, and one of the things that kind of holds our commitment to decriminalizing all drugs is this idea that separating good drugs and bad drugs actually increases stigma on people who are using different substances. And I'm very careful about how I, how I frame those things because like I've seen a tremendous amount of um, harm occur to people and families and communities because of drugs. And I've also seen a lot of benefits. And I'm not just talking about psychedelics. I'm just talking about drugs in general. So um, I, I also, because I've seen so much harm and so many, so many things occur to people, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted by the state or something else, like um, I'm very cautious about basically why and how I'm talking about these substances and um, for which purpose. So the nice thing about the MAPS thing, about the MAPS approach is that um, the kind of primary arc of what MAPS is doing with respect to getting FDA approval for MDMA right now um, is, is inherently limited by the medical system. So it comes with quality control and oversight and a lot of all these other things. But, and although I personally don't think that the medical system is the only one, and I think in fact it'd probably be harmful if we were only able to get medicine through the medical framework. I think there's a lot of limitations to it. Um, I do feel like that there's aspects of that system that are really beneficial, like quality control, oversight, accountability, and so on. I do feel, I, you know, I've been having my own experiences with psychedelics for about 15 years, and not just, you know, for sure in the way that many young ravers have had at parties and celebrations and festivals, but also like with my family and on pilgrimages and in contexts that are much more mindful in therapeutic contexts and so on. My personal opinion is that psychedelics can help a lot of people. I do think that when they're uh, held in the correct way with the right environment, which is different for different people and different needs, they can have a tremendous amount of benefit. I really hesitate calling myself an evangelical because I actually think it's extremely irresponsible to talk about psychedelics without mentioning the risks and harms. And I actually think it's equally irresponsible to make up risk and harms like DARE or scruff, whatever Scruff McGruff um, did because I actually think that that increases it, it, it increases disinformation, which makes it harder for people to actually be safe. So from a personal perspective, like my approach is really like, what is the safest way that this kind of behavior can happen? And I come at it from a very harm reduction approach in the sense that like, I don't think that we can stop drug use. You know, the UN um, special session on drugs in 1998 or 1997 met, and their slogan was a world without drugs. And I always like reflecting on that because I actually think it's like such a hysterically ridiculous possibility like what does that even mean people have been smoking opium for thousands of years you know like that's not going to change because like governments decide to criminalize it, it just means we're going to put a bunch of people in jail and hurt them so I'm, I'm i'm i do believe that psychedelics can and do induce those feelings you were talking about of unity of growth of oneness da, da, da. Like, i absolutely believe that they can have that experience but i think it's very naive to think that they are inherently good or inherently create some sort of moral value in people and I do think, actually, I will, I will caveat that with what you said about environmentalism. I actually do feel like there's something about psychedelics that bring a level of consciousness to the environment, which does feel quite universal, um, even beyond politics. Like, there's a lot of, you know, there are people who are, um, like, there's a whole, like, uh, subculture of psychedelic using kind of, like, pagan origin, like, neo-Nazis in Europe. Like, it's a thing. And there are definitely people who use psychedelics for their own personal growth and um, amoral or kind of purely, you might say like capitalistic or like, you know, resource acquisition oriented kind of ways. 
for sure. So, so I actually, and, and this goes to actually, I think one of the points that you made also in your question, which is like, I feel all that way about the psychedelics themselves, the medicine. Um, and there, there's like different arguments and conversations they can have about the level of consciousness, some of these different substances and, and molecules have. But the other piece that you said, I actually think does have this tremendous moral value, which is the container, the container in which it happens. Um, and I think that like from, um, like social, social design perspective, um, how, how like the containers through which psychedelics become available is really the key question for me. So I feel like I am a little bit of evangelical for well-held containers <laughs> in the sense that like, I think that, you know, that could be a ceremony, that could be a doctor's office with a therapist, that could be yourself and close friends, that could be like me and my family, you know, like we, there's ways to hold these containers in different ways and there isn't like one right one for, for whatever. But I do think that like the, the, there is very little doubt in my mind that the container within which these substances happen has a huge effect um, on both the experience itself and also the long-term kind of effects of that experience on a person. Uh, and this really comes down to my own theory of change, which is about storytelling. Like how do we create, how do we heal? How do we create narratives to change things over time. So much of that for me is a, is a process of storytelling, collective storytelling, individual narrative building and so on. And in my mind, like to the extent that healing is a process of, of narrative building, like how do you re-relate re or differently relate to something that happened to you in a way that changes the kind of like the story that you have about it, that allows you to uh, reconsolidate the term we use sometimes as memory reconsolidation. Like how do you th remember something differently? from the way that you were remembering it. That's a big question for people because it has, it's not just the drugs. It's like, how do we think about our childhood? How do we think about parenting? How do we think about you know, our ancestors? Like those are all things that um, do come up in the container. And I do, you know, I've dedicated my life. I feel very committed to this work. Like this is definitely not just a job for me. It's, and I mean, in some ways it's like, it's work and through the nonprofit industrial complex and philanthropy systems and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's like the reality of working in like the, the system that we, that we live in today. The possibility that psychedelics do offer um, does seem potentially tremendously transformative. And I feel like my role right now is making sure that we're thinking about some of these like stickier, more nuanced issues because it would be very easy to just like fit them into the, um, the like factory line of every other product that gets pushed out through every other way. And that's something that I really want to um, avoid or at least make sure we're doing some very deep reflection around. That's great. Ismail Ali, thank you so much for joining us on The Psychedelic Moment. It's been a great pleasure to listen and to learn from you. I've been really appreciating this conversation. So thank you so much for the invitation and glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby, Michelle McCrary, and Michelle Broderick. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution. <laughs>